Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Matteo Benetti, who does a terrific job as a broadcast analyst for ESPN's Italian soccer coverage. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Emilia Lopez, Jim Curtin, and Musa Okwanga, along with many others, so check those interviews out. It would be huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. Now, here's my interview with Matteo Benetti. Our guest now is Matteo Benetti. He's a fantastic broadcast analyst for ESPN's coverage of Italy's Syria A, most of which you can see on ESPN+. Plus. You can also see it occasionally on ESPN television channels. Matteo, it's about time we had you on here. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it's been over a decade that we followed each other on Twitter, but we've never actually met each other in person. I was starting to have my doubts if you were even real or just a figment of my imagination. So it's glad that I got to, to actually put a, an actual moving human image on your voice. I am glad we're finally doing this, and we're going to talk a lot about Italian soccer later on here, but I want to start by talking about your personal story in getting to where you are now, and you know, based on what I know, you were born in Italy, grew up in the United States, and you had to grind for a long time to become a, a full-time media member in the soccer space, so... Let's go back in time. How did everything get started for you? Yeah, so you're actually spot on with that. I was born in Milan. I came to the United States when I was six years old. My parents moved to Miami. They opened up an Italian restaurant because, of course, that's what you do. <laughs> and uh, and I remember watching Syria with, with my dad at the only restaurant in town, which was called Café de los Sport, which was in Miami Beach, that actually aired the games in grainy post-World War II era. It was just a terrible viewing experience. The TV was like 20 inches big. <laughs> So it was really tough to watch Serie A, as you know, Grant, in the 90s here, whereas in England, it was like Football Italian. It was, you know, such a great period for the Italian league, but it really didn't start uh, becoming a thing here in the States, I think, until the 2000s when, when major networks started picking up the league. So I actually had no idea what I wanted to do in life. I was always a pretty good writer, and at 18, I, I went to college. I had terrible grades freshman year. And I got a warning from, from the college I went to, Florida International University, saying basically pick up your grades or we're kicking you out. I just had no ambition, I had no drive, I was still very immature. And I actually got kicked out in the end. So I got kicked out freshman year of college. It wasn't a great start to my academic career post high school. But I, I remember having a chat with my parents and my parents said, right, you need to see what it's like in the real world so that'll give you a kick up the butt. So they helped me in getting this job that was $400 a week. I was writing ad copy for a marketing company as basically the lowest rung, but still they gave me actually quite some good responsibility for an 18 year old. I helped with the ad copy. It was one of the few things that I knew how to do pretty well was writing. And I remember in one of my many breaks, which I just went on and started perusing the interwebs, I, uh, I was on ESPN Soccer and I saw that they needed a, a, a team by team specific blogger for all the big teams in Europe. It, it was at the time, I think 2007, and blogs weren't really a thing. There, were, there weren't many English speaking people blogging about big European soccer teams. And I saw that Milan, my childhood team, was one of the teams that they were advertising. So I sent in my resume. Didn't think I'd ever hear anything back, but the day after, the, the general editor of ESPN got back and said, you know what, I like your style, I like that it's kind of this, 
you know, making fun of the players, uh, very quirky, I guess. Uh, not taking yourself too seriously, nor should I have given the position I was in. And, and the day after, he gave me the blog. And there started the Milan guy. I never made a penny for my work in four years that I wrote for ESPN. It was basically a position that they said, this is unpaid. You can choose whether you want it or not. At the time, it was fine because I was living at home with my parents. And I was going to college. And I realized that it wasn't an opportunity for everyone, right? If I had a family, I probably wouldn't have taken it because it still required me watching a lot of football. I had to write a few articles a week that would normally feature on ESPN's webpage. But what this did has become the most invaluable position for me, Grant, because it gave me finally a platform and it showed off my work to the masses. And all of a sudden, I remember Twitter came out and my followers were going up in the thousands. And then before I knew it, I had 10,000 followers. I had $30 in my bank account. And I was like, okay, so what's next? So I I graduated, I, I got back to school. I went to community college, got all A's transferred up to Boston, finished my last two years in Boston. And that's when the opportunity at BN Sports opened up and I took the lowest position they had available because I knew I wanted to stay in the industry and I knew that I I just needed to do something with the platform I had built. So I, I started as a production assistant making 30 grand a year and, uh, and, and that ultimately became another, uh, given where I am now, that, that really was a wise decision on my end, more thinking long-term instead of short-term financial benefit. It's incredible to me, actually, that ESPN would like use your work and pay you literally nothing for like a long time. <laughs> hey, hey and, and the thing is, is that they told me right away, like, listen, this is a blog. All of our writers are, are unpaid. It's all young guys. So I had no problem with it. Uh, when it was offered to me, I actually saw it as a, as a great opportunity and I wasn't in a position where, you know, the, the, the money was the most important thing just because of, I was 18 years old and, you know, I, I had a roof over my head. So it, it still was a long period though of doing work for very little pay and then, you know, at, at, at being sports as a production assistant, you're getting the Starbucks orders, you're cutting the B-roll, you're doing all these things that maybe aren't your passion, but you realize that this is how it has to be in this industry if you want to go anywhere. And, you know, not being an ex-player, I don't think I ever saw myself doing color commentary. I never saw myself being a studio analyst because I grew up watching Italian uh, TV where all the studio analysts and all the color commentators are ex-players or ex-managers, but I'm glad that now we're seeing a shift where you're seeing journalists and and just fans that, you know, have made themselves quite a name being able to sit at the table with the ex-players. So I I could have never imagined that I was going to be given an opportunity to analyze the game. And I I think even now in in terms of English language, I think I might be the only person that isn't an ex-player that's doing color commentary in English in the U.S. Yeah, it's, it's it's pretty incredible. I wanted to ask you about that later. I'll ask you now. I mean, the rarity of having a TV game analyst not having been a high-level player or manager. Um, you know, when I worked at Fox Sports and I was there for seven years, we had one lead producer who was very accomplished and, and a good guy, but he literally did not want anyone who had not played or coached at a high level to express an opinion on air, which was kind of crazy to me at the time at a place that employed Skip Bayless, but <laughs> who expressed a few opinions on the air. Um, but how have you been able to to sort of to make that happen and to, you know, it's somewhat similar to asking like Jose Mourinho how he got the, uh, the respect from a, a really 
you know, elite team locker room, given that he never played at a high level? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think originally it was more uh, my circumstances that allowed me to do it. I was at BN Sports, which was a new network that had a, a, a limited budget, and they really couldn't have that many people that, you know, they weren't going to bring over people from Europe or even people from the headquarters of BN Sports in Qatar, where they had Ballon d'Or winners and Jose Mourinho and really the biggest names. And BN has had big names, but I think they had so many games. They were like this factory of soccer where they were airing like four to five soccer games a day, sometimes even six or seven, and they just needed bodies to be able to do it. So I remember when I was 24 years old, uh, one of the main producers asked me, how do you feel about commentating a game? We'll, we'll give you a screen test, we'll give you 20 minutes, we'll just roll a game and see how you do. They tried me on uh, as play-by-play -play and then color. Um, but I mean, I, I've grown up, you know, watching the game extensively. I've, I've been around the game. So I, I felt like I, I, I never felt, I never felt like I would actually get an opportunity to analyze it on, on, an, on an actual commentary just because it hadn't been done before in, in English, it hadn't been done before. I know in the Spanish language it's a bit more normal that you have journalists as color commentators, but when they said we actually want you to do color, I was shocked. And you know, you, you do get a bit of imposter syndrome in the beginning because you think, you know, who am I to tell an ex-player or an ex-manager this is what you should have done or this is what I, uh, what I think that the play should have led to. And very quickly, you know, with all the reps that I've gotten, and I have a place where I tally all the games that I've done. I mean, we were doing thousands of games, games that, you know, it would have taken me 50 years at another network where you're doing one to two games a week to do the games that we did at BN. We were, I was doing at one point seven to eight commentaries a week. And you learn very quickly, and with all the conversations that I was able to have with ex-players and coaches, and be able to refine the way that I was giving analysis and say, right, well, actually what I said there isn't right, and here's what I could say that, that would actually make more sense. And then it became where a situation where, you know, the players and, and the coaches that were at BN, they were saying, you know, good job on the analysis. And to hear that from someone who had played at the highest level was, to me, the biggest boost of confidence, where suddenly I felt like I, I did belong. And... You know, my voice I was starting to be a bit more credible. And I was so young, man. I was like 25 years old and I, I, I had to pinch myself and I thought, well, this is only going to happen at BN Sports. You know, the BN Sports, because of the situation that it is, it's a new network. No major network is ever going to let me do this. And I love doing color commentary now. It's my, it's my, it's not a job. It is the best thing that I do on a weekly basis. I love it. I, I get this adrenaline rush the whole time. And then when ESPN, ESPN got the rights to Serie A, I applied as a play-by-play -play originally because I thought, well, you know, this isn't going to continue. This is the end of the road for me with color commentary. And uh, one of the people at ESPN actually said, no, we want you to continue doing what you were doing at BN. And then when ESPN kind of validated my position, that was the most incredible feeling ever because then I realized, okay, no, this wasn't just uh, my circumstances in Miami. This is actually something I can do long-term. And ESPN, growing up in America, I see it as the mountaintop. You know, once you're at ESPN, it's like, what's next? So I think that was the biggest uh, boost of confidence for me is just getting to continue doing that here at such a massive network. I have a question about Bian. Um, do you have any good Ray Hudson stories? Okay, so everyone asks about Ray Hudson. Ray Hudson's the reason why I'm actually on TV. He, we had to do a studio test for The Locker Room, right? Which was the show that they used to do that was a roundtable discussion. And uh, they needed a PA to fill in just for lighting purposes. We had a debate and Ray after me, afterwards looks at me and this is gonna be a terrible impersonation. He goes, Mario, 
you're brilliant, man. I need to get you on. And I was like, oh, come on, Ray, relax. Like, I'm not, I'm never going to be able to do this on, on TV with you guys. But he actually went to the bosses and, and he got me on my first ever locker room. But he is behind the scenes even more exaggerated than how he is on air. So people might listen to his La Liga games and think, you know what, Ray's just, you know, he's putting on this, this character and, you know, no, that's how he is. He described once this piece of pizza that he had. He said, oh, the, the melted cheese and the, the tomato. And he just goes into such vivid detail about everything. And he just has this zest for life that is the most incredible experience when you have him right next right next to you. He is a national treasure. I love that man. And he that's just who he is. And he loves the game more than anyone that I've ever met. He loves the beauty of the game, a good pass. A magical play. It really does excite him that much. He can't contain his emotion when he's speaking about it. So what you're seeing is 110% vintage, real Ray Hudson. It is amazing because I've, I've had Ray on, on the show before. I've talked to him a bunch of times. And you're right. He, he That is who he is. And it's not an act. Whereas I, I, there, I've had occasions when somebody does have an act and and when you do talk to them for the first time in real life and they're completely different you're like whoa that's uh not what i expected but yep. uh with, with Ray, <laughs> know all about that yeah. <laughs> it's a hundred percent of the time um you are married to the terrific Kay murray who also used to be at be in sports and is also now at espn uh you do a soccer podcast with Kay. what's that like being married to someone in soccer media well, it's uh, it's it's really nothing special to be honest. I think you're just kind of used to it. We actually we met uh, quite a while ago uh, when she was back in Spain, and when we started working together at first, uh, we did we didn't tell anybody just because we didn't think it was anyone's business. And then obviously, you know, the word gets out in in the company that we were in in Miami at, at BN Sports, and and even now it's just I I think we just both pinch ourselves and we think you know this is. We're both so lucky to be doing what we love. And the fact that we've been now at two different networks together, it was another situation I'd be in. We were like, is this ever going to happen again, that we both have a job in the same network in the same city? And then I took a chance on, on ESPN. I, I, I left my, my contract at BN for three games with ESPN, and then it became a one-year deal, and then it became a three-year deal. So it was obviously an, uh, another gamble that, that worked out for me in the end, and then with Kay coming up here and uh, and her, her, her first child being born, it was a chance for her to just relax for uh, about 10 months, take 10 months off, and, and now she's at ESPN doing doing great work as well. So we, we feel very, uh, very lucky that we've both been able to do this now at two networks. It's interesting, both of you have come out of what have become sort of talent hotbeds that have produced media people uh, who are kind of a different bigger places now. So with Kay, Real Madrid TV, it's kind of crazy when you look at all the people in media who worked there over the years. Whether Unbelievable. It's Unbelievable. Dan Thomas, Ali Bender, uh, Reshman Chaudhuri, um, Kay, you know, like... Sid Lowe. The list goes yeah, on and on. Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> and then in, in being sports, uh, you've got you, uh, you've got Kevin Egan, you've got Ian Joy, um, there's a lot of folks and there's obviously great folks who are still there, but it's just interesting to me how that's, those have been launch pads. Do you think we'll continue yeah. to see more folks? Yeah. And, and, and being, I think really did serve its purpose. I think being is the perfect place to be if you're young, if you want to break into the industry, because 
it's it's easy to once you're there and you're good and you know and you know what you're doing and you show that you have willingness to work they'll give you the chances i have friends there that started as producers eric krakauer who does color commentary now for being sports he started as a producer they'll give you a shot and if you're a producer and if you have no experience they will give you a screen test if they think that you're good enough because for them you know right now they're working with with budget constraints i think so it, it just makes sense for them and it allows people to really grow so if you're young and you want to get into this industry, maybe you you know you you don't want to do I don't know college TV or local TV. You get the chance to do national TV, and at the time it was international because being sports was going out in Canada, so we were going out in two countries, you know, covering many households and with no experience. So it, you know it's it is how new uh, TV channels will operate. But yeah, it's it was the best place for me, and it was the best place for a lot of people as well that were trying to grow their brand and then ultimately branched out. Now, if I remember correctly, your family, going back a few generations, has a connection to Italian football. Is that yeah. accurate? Yeah, that is. So my grandfather was actually the vice president of Milan from 70 to 73. So he had a three-year stretch uh, with uh, with Milan, and that's obviously how my, the, my father became a Milan fan. They were actually Inter fans before that happened, and they quickly changed allegiances <laughs> once he... He got into into that position, but that's why uh, my dad raised me in Miami and made sure that I would always have some sort of link to Milan. He would force me to watch the games, and when I was young, I didn't even like soccer. I was ten years old. I was like, I just want to watch the Miami Heat. You know, it was the mid '90s. It was Alonzo Mourning and Tim Hardaway, and you know, I just wanted to go to the stadium, to the old uh, Miami Arena, and just watch the Heat. That was my biggest passion. And I would have never thought, you know, we joke about it right now with my dad. My dad's like, how are you working in, in soccer media? When you were 10, you hated soccer. I had to force you. You would cry because you didn't want to come and watch the game. And now it's, it's, it's been my livelihood and it's my biggest passion. Now, before we get to some specifics on what's happening in Italy right now, soccer-wise, um, just kind of wanted to get a sense of how, you know, at one point your Twitter handle was the, the Milan guy. Like, yeah. And, and people are so passionate about rivalries and tribal. And it seems to me, now maybe maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that you have a real credibility with fans of all sorts of Italian teams who don't just, like, you don't, you're not viewed as like a Milan homer, is, is I guess no, my point. No, no. And so like, how have you been able to, to achieve that in a very sort of passionate fan situation? <laughs> Grant, you'll know this too. When you work in the industry and you've been in it for a long time and you've been in it much longer than I have, you, you start losing a bit of that, you know, fanboy behavior, right? It quickly gets knocked out of you because you start seeing it, unfortunately, like work. I still have a great time calling Serie A matches, but I don't view Milan the way I did when I was 18 and I would, you know, go crazy about the results or, and I was super biased when I wrote the, the blog for ESPN, but it had to be because it was a fan blog. You're supposed to be the homer. You're supposed to be biased. When I'm doing a Milan Inter game, for example, I think you're so focused on calling the game correctly and really focused on all the minutiae and all the detail that goes into such a big match and not missing anything and, and looking off the ball to see what you've noticed. You don't have time to think, oh, that's my team or that isn't my team. You're just trying to get your words out coherently. You're just trying to make sure that you're saying something that is credible and respectable and that people aren't going to hound you on Twitter afterwards. And if they do, you know what? I don't care. But it's 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 just the last thing on your mind is, uh, is my team playing? Is my team doing good? When Milan score, I don't think, oh, Milan just scored in the derby that I'm on Donina. I just think, okay, what happened in the buildup to that goal? 
And I think a lot of fans of Inter in the beginning when I was the Milan guy quickly had to change to the Calcio guy. Calcio means soccer in Italian. And the Milan fans were pissed off about that. They're like, oh, Matteo was sold out. It's like, yeah, maybe, maybe I have. I work at an international company. No, I, I, I sold out. Okay, if you want to say I sold out, it's fine. I, I don't care. Um, and then I changed it to just uh, Bonetti ESPN, you know, uh, to, to be the company guy, which is totally fine. Um, but I think a lot of Inter fans, a lot of Juve fans, they've now listened to me calling Serie A since 2012. And uh, I think a lot of them don't even know or maybe forgot that I did grow up as a Milan fan. And, you know, you wouldn't be able to guess it from my commentary. And I take pride in that because it's, it is the most important thing. You know, the second that you show any sort of bias, I think you lose your credibility, especially as a commentator where you're not supposed to show any sort of bias. You're supposed to call the game as accurately as you can and... and uh, yeah, I, I just think that it's been too long now, and uh, you're you're looking at a Milan game. You're just you're just thinking of everything else but the the final result. And oh, I'm gonna call my dad afterwards, and we're gonna celebrate this victory. It's the last thing on my mind. It is funny for me too, because I at Sports Illustrated used to cover for many years half college basketball, half soccer before I went full time soccer. And my boyhood basketball team was the University of Kansas, and very quickly I learned how not to be a fan anymore because as a journalist in that situation i was rooting for my story and i literally had a story once where my story would only run in the magazine if kansas lost a game and <laughs> so i learned to root for my story making it into the magazine and was actually quite happy when when kansas lost that game and then i realized you're a professional now and so that's that's what happened that's it that's it <laughs> um so let's talk Syria and, and let's talk Milan right now. They're in first place and they're on this terrific run now for many months. And I'm wondering at what point will you think that Milan is back? What would it take? I think they're back now. Uh, I'm not going to put them as Scudetto favorites to win Syria because I think it's just been eight years of, of utter ineptitude and embarrassing times. I mean, they have a nickname for this period of the 2010s, which is called the banter era for Milan, because just, you know, you think of the Chinese ownership that then they didn't have money and, you know, tons of mediocre players overspent for. But I mean, 22 games undefeated since post-lockdown. And, you know, it's just, it's such a weird time, the post-lockdown period with no fans in the stadium. And I almost feel like, and I might be wrong, but it's a pure version of sports, right? You saw this even in the NBA bubble where, it almost feels like the home crowd, because it's removed, you really are getting the best team that's winning, or you're getting just a pure state where the fans aren't being that 12th man. So I almost feel like this run has been even more special for Milan, that they're going on this in incredible winning streak, where I think it's 17 wins for uh, five, four or five draws. And they're doing it in, in such a congested football calendar, where there's three games a week, now they have European football in the Europa League, they have, uh, you know, a team that's the youngest team in Syria. It is absolutely incredible. And I put that down to Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who is ageless, who has, with, with that class and with that unique ability as a player, it doesn't matter how old you are because you don't need to run. He doesn't need to move to have an impact. He can hold the play. He's an incredible athlete. He's got this brilliant touch that's never going to go away. The guy's going to play till he's 50. He's not human. And, and, and Stefano Pioli, the manager that they kept, they had this guy, Ralph Rangnick, that they said was going to be the savior coming over from Germany, and he's another philosopher. Stefano Pioli was doing nothing but win games, and of course he should have stayed on. The players love him. He stayed on for the first time since 2012, Milan have continuity, 
And those two things, I think, have been the biggest factor for this dramatic rise. You know, we're five match days in to the league, and the top three teams, as of right now in the table, are not Champions League teams right now. It, it's Milan, yeah. it's Napoli, it's Sassuolo. Why do you think that's the case? And what are the chances that you think it might continue? So I think it's so early in the season. I don't think two of those teams, I, I don't think Sassuolo is going to finish in the top four because Juventus is just having this early dip and it's because of Andrea Pirlo and tons of players being out to COVID. You know, they had lost Cristiano Ronaldo uh, to coronavirus uh, for two weeks. And it's just, it's such a weird season to analyze Grant. You think back to Inter, that six positive cases I think half of them starters. Genoa lost basically their entire first team. They had like over 22 cases. So it's it's such a difficult season to analyze when you have this variable, the, 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 these COVID positive tests that you don't know when they're going to spring up. You don't know how many people are going to get infected. From one game to the next, you could have half your lineup missing. And it, it just makes it uh, this element of randomness, doesn't it, in, in each game. But I think it's also a testament to the quality of the league. And the quality of teams like Sassuolo and like Atalanta who do things the right way. And I'm not saying that going out and spending hundreds of millions of euro is, isn't the right way, but it clearly was an inflated transfer market. And it became a situation that I think was untenable. And I think almost the, this pandemic has hit a bit of a reset button now in the transfer market. And I think just going back before the pandemic, teams like Atalanta and Sassuolo, brilliant scouting systems, great youth team, especially Atalanta, finding players in the smaller leagues because the Premier League isn't going to go to the the Dutch League, the Belgian League, the, the Swiss League. They're going to go for the finished products because they have the money to do so. So the big Premier League sides are going to La Liga. They're going to Serie A. They're going to Ligue 1. They're going to the Bundesliga. They're going to the other top four uh, European leagues. They're not going for the unfinished product because they can afford the finished product. So it makes total sense. Atalanta can't do that. Atalanta's wage bill is the same as a mid-table championship side. That is a second Crazy. division English side. It's insane. So they have to go and they have to pluck out these guys that they're obviously doing great scouting uh, work on that cost one to two million. And then two years later, they're selling them for, for 10 times that. It's crazy. So with this smart business, I think we're seeing better teams in the mid-table of the league. And they're posing threats for, for the usual top four or top six, the usual big six teams in Syria. Yeah, I got a couple questions for you on Juventus. One, with an American connection, Weston McKenney is still early on in his time there. I was pleasantly surprised that he ended up going to Juve because everyone was talking about Southampton, which is not exactly an equivalent to Juve. Um, and so he ends up going to Juve and then I'm like, Oh, I wonder if he's going to play. Then he starts first two league games under Pirlo. Um, did get pulled off in his second game. Then he got COVID. Um, so I wouldn't say yet that he's established himself as a starter, because I don't think that's the case. And, and now he's got to come back from COVID. It looks like he might be available um, for Champions League here. Um, what are your thoughts on on Weston McKinney at Juve and how he you could see him fitting in or not fitting in this season? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very good question. He actually told me in an interview that we did a few weeks ago that his dream was always to go to the Premier League. But if you're comparing Southampton, which is probably going to be fighting for relegation, and then Juventus come knocking with Cristiano Ronaldo and a team that's built to go all the way in the Champions League that's 
favored to win a 10th consecutive uh, Scudetto. How do you reject Juventus? I think that for, for Weston McKinney, from what he said, he went to Juventus and his tasks have been so simplified because there's so many great players around him. He said that at Schalke, he had to do everything. He had much more responsibility at Juve. He just has one thing that he's got to focus on and that's it. And that's made it easier. He said that the players around him are really raising him as well. And you're looking around Europe and you're seeing American players at Barcelona, at, at, at Borussia Dortmund, at Chelsea. It's incredible. And now we have a young player in Weston McKinney at Juventus. Of course, he's not a guaranteed starter, but he's going to play about 15 to 20 games, I think, from the start, which is still amazing. And for a young American now to be surrounded and to know the work ethic and what it takes to be at the highest level, just like so many of the young Americans are, this is a golden generation. I mean, this is the time to buy stock in American soccer and also the rise of soccer popularity in this country. Think back to the most viewed game, USA-Belgium 2014 World Cup. The entire nation was tuned in. Imagine when the U.S. are playing the World Cup on home soil when you have five to six players at their absolute peak that are playing for teams that need to go, that are trying to go all the way in the Champions League. It's going to draw so many new fans and suddenly people are going to say, yeah, I can be American and I can play at the top teams and they're going to come looking for us in MLS. And whether it means we have to go through the Bundesliga to do so or another route, but suddenly you're having all these American players doing well at once. Weston McKinney is exactly where he needs to be. I'm so glad he chose Juventus, Grant. Yeah, I mean, like in terms of Andrea Pirlo as a first-time manager at Juve, what are you... What do you see that we're learning so far about Pirlo as manager? And will this will this work? Does this have a chance to work? We're learning that it takes time and it's not something that you can just do with, with no experience. I mean, he went in having been the manager of the under-23 squad for a week. He never actually managed the team. He had to get his he had to deliver his thesis to even be able to manage to get his, his coaching badges before the start of the season. And people were saying, oh, this is like Zinedine Zidane. No, it's not. Zinedine Zidane managed Real Madrid's second team. He was one of Ancelotti's assistants. Pirlo has much less experience than Zidane. But I feel like there's this general love for Pirlo where everyone wants to see him do well. So people are very you know, cautious about starting to criticize him. But the fact of the matter is Juventus have Cristiano Ronaldo. They're paying him 35 million euro salary net a season, which is like set six or seven times more than the second highest player to win the Champions League. And you're going with Pirlo. And I get it that it's COVID and Juve reported significant losses because of COVID. But it was it was head scratching at the time. And I really want it to work. And, and clearly they think that he's the new, you know, the new great Italian manager. I mean, to give him that role. And Juve know what they're doing with these choices. But in the first few weeks, Grant, you're seeing many changes, a lot of tinkering, players out of position that are not working, playing in this new position for the first time in their career. And it's not a team that's rebuilding. It feels like almost they're rebuilding, but they're in a situation where they're the favorites to win the Scudetto, 10th straight, which would be incredible. But they need to win the Champions League. They didn't get Cristiano Ronaldo for the Scudetti. They were doing that without Cristiano Ronaldo. They got him to go all the way in the Champions League. They lost two Champions League finals now in the last like six or seven years. And Pirlo needs to figure out what his best 11 is as soon as possible. Because right now, I think if everyone's fit and healthy, he has no idea. And how could he? There's been a lot of new players coming in. He's trying different formations. He's going from a back three. Maybe there's a back four in the future. 
but he's got to get it sorted out because Juventus don't have the patience. When you have Cristiano Ronaldo on the team, there's no rebuilding. There's no patience that you can afford to give a manager. It has to be right now. We talked about an American player with Juventus, Weston McKennie. There are also a lot of U.S. and, and Canadian ownership in Italy. Yeah. You know, we've got Parma now, Roma, Fiorentina, Bologna. Um, how has that gone and... Like we've seen a lot of resistance to American owners in the English Premier League. Has that resistance been similar or not similar, in your opinion, in Italy? So there's more foreign owners now in Italy than ever. It, it, it was almost strange for a, a Serie A club to be owned by anyone else other than Italian even less than half a decade ago. So for now, to see all these Americans and people coming in from different countries, you have a Canadian, Joey Saputo, who owns Bologna and Montreal Impact. As long as the team is winning and as long as fans are seeing a difference being made. So one of the biggest problems, for example, is the stadium issue, right? And I think Americans on the front of marketing are much ahead of the old Italian owners. And I think that this is, it's almost like a new way of thinking and understanding the, the marketing value of Serie A, which I thought was, was quite poor up until a little while ago. I think right now they're even catching up. They were the last to the boat on, on, on social media you know, to, to understand the value of having, you know, professionally done YouTube pages and, and, and social media accounts. I think Roma's really leading the charge there. But just look at Roma's old American owner. Now they have a new American owner in Friedkin. They were desperately trying to get a new stadium in Rome and then they faced the Italian bureaucracy. Same thing with Joy Saputa Bologna. They had to refurbish the Dallara and now it looks a bit better. I think that's a way to win your way into the fans' hearts is you show that you're willing to not just invest more money into the players, but also change some of the, the fundamental issues with Italian football, which are stadiums that are not privately owned, that are owned by the comune or the, the, the town. So that means less ticket revenue. These are all things that I think foreign owners understanding the, the, the value of owning your own arena like you do here or your own stadium is, is very beneficial and just giving a, a very different viewpoint and, and thought process to the way that Serie A was being conducted. It's interesting to me. I'm going to try and get some of these owners on the podcast here because I've, I've interviewed Rocco Camiso before. He lives not that far away from me here in New York. He's a character, isn't he? He's a big character. <laughs> and it was funny to me that he has a way of speaking uh, in English, which is I, I saw him interviewed in Italian somewhere not too long ago, and he actually had the same mannerisms when he spoke Italian, which was just <laughs> funny to me. But uh, really interesting guy. He played at Columbia, owned the Cosmos as well. Um, and, you know, Parma has a, a new American uh, owner. And from Iowa. How about that? Iowa to Parma. That's probably not a direct flight. And would love to get him on. He's doing a little bit of media too. And they're going to be in a, in a potential relegation battle. So, um, you know, we'll see how that goes, but definitely an American influence on the ownership side now. Um, I want to start to wrap up a little bit by asking you about something I ask a lot of our guests, which is we have a lot of uh, students who are listeners, people who want to go into soccer media, and what sort of advice would you give to them? So I think there's more tools now available to, to anyone uh, to, to start their own identity online, whether it be a podcast like what you're doing, whether it be a YouTube page, a fan account, there's millions of blogs. That also means more saturation, right? That anyone has a podcast, anyone has 
whatever they want to have. But I mean, it's a starting place. But my biggest advice, instead of just saying start a podcast, because I know how difficult it is to gain the viewerships, to gain the clout. I mean, it is a process that you need luck. You obviously need to be good at what you do. But I would say the best way, just based on what I've seen, and, and a lot of my close friends that start in the industry who now do things on air or are journalists or are on the ground, reach out to every major network and whether it be an MLS team, whether it be a local TV station, although I'd say, you know, an ESPN, a Fox, an NBC, a CBS, a BN Sports, there's a lot out there. Just see what's available in terms of getting your foot in the door. So I started out as a production assistant. It can be even a, 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 a basic role in social media, if that's what you like, or digital media. Get your foot in the door. It's going to be a financial challenge, and I know that this isn't a possibility for people who are in a different situation, if they have family, if they have kids, if they, you know, they're worried about things that I wasn't worried about when I was 18. So it's easy for me to say, yeah, get your foot in the door, you're going to have to grind it out. It's the truth, but it also, you know, how badly do you want it? You know, is it something that you think, right, I can actually see myself long-term doing this? Can you take the financial hit that's going to come from it? Because this isn't a position, you, you know, it's not like you're a nurse or you're an electrician. This isn't a commodity. You know, this isn't a position where there's really much incentive to pay a better rate because you have all these kids fresh out of college that all want to work in sports and they're all applying for, you know, uh, production assistant roles, for example. So why would a company suddenly pay $60,000 when they can say, right, we'll give you 25 to 35 and you can get a start. But you know, that's, it, it is what it is in this industry with the amount of interest, and rightfully so. You get to work in sports. It doesn't really feel like a job. So there are definitely some growing pains, but, you know, once you're there and once you start pitching ideas and you start getting to know the hierarchy and you start having fresh ideas, you say, right, I'm in the company now. Yes, I'm making little money, but I can, you know, start pitching. Maybe I have an idea for a documentary or maybe I have this or that. It doesn't matter. As long as you show willingness and you show that you're willing to do much more than your uh, niche job is required because, you know, as a production assistant, you have two or three roles and that's it. But you show willingness to work overtime or, you know, to work in your spare time to just create content and you present it. I think that's a great avenue for people uh, to kind of get that launch um, into a much bigger role, Grant, as, as you know. I mean, you've talked to so many people as well who have had to do a similar thing. It's, it's tough in the beginning. Matteo Benetti is a broadcast analyst for ESPN's coverage of Italian soccer. Matteo, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a big favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. We've had some really nice reviews that have been put in Apple Podcasts lately, so really appreciate that. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Matteo Benetti, as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. 